Good morning. Let's uh, open with a word of prayer. Father, we thank you once again for your goodness to us. Every day we are surrounded by the good things that you have given to us from your generous hand, and we want to be grateful children. Father, now as we have had this opportunity to worship you in song and the anticipation of the love for one another expressed, now we want to express our love for you and your word by giving careful attention to what your spirit has to say to the church today. It is our prayer as we learn more of you, Father God, that you become greater and we become less, even as John said of Jesus. Uh, Father, we want to have a great view of who you are to display to this world. And now speak to us by your word and your children will listen. And these things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. On display at St. Patrick's Cathedral in Dublin, Ireland, there's this door. It actually, it's, it doesn't attach to a wall any longer. It's just out in the middle of a foyer. And it's a door that's uh, been, uh, it, it's a rough wooden door, and there's a hole that's chopped into it about chest high, this rectangular opening that's been hacked into the middle of it. And it's called the Door of Reconciliation. And this story is related also to the Irish expression to chance one's arms. Anyway, in 1492, while Columbus was sailing the ocean blue to find this land for me and you, in 1492, there were these two Irish uh, clans that were warring because each one of them wanted to have their man um, in the position of Lord Deputy. So the two clans were the Ormonds and the Kildaris. And both of these families uh, wanted someone from their clan to be, to be the deputy, and they were arguing about it until the point where the tension actually broke out into uh, a violent skirmish. Um, the, they, they met outside of the city walls. They started fighting. It was very clear before long that Gerald Fitzgerald, the Earl of Kildare, was, was by much stronger than the others. And so Sir James Butler, the Earl of Ormond, retreated with his men. They ran into the cathedral. They wanted sanctuary because they were getting beat so badly. And then they barricaded themselves in this uh, chapel room, um, bolting the door behind them. The siege kept on. And then the Earl of Kadari um, concluded that this, this whole thing was, was foolish. It was, it was stupid to keep feuding. Here, here were two families who worshipped the same God. They worshipped at the same church. They were living in the same country. They were brothers, and here they were killing each other. And so Sir James um, calls out, and this is how it reads in the inscription in the in St. Patrick's Cathedral, he undertook on his honor that he should receive no villainy. Uh, in other words, he said, I'm not going to hurt you. You should come out. Then there was no response because they didn't trust him. They were afraid that if they came out, they'd be slaughtered. And so afraid of some further treachery, um, Ormond didn't respond. And so Kildari took his spear and chopped a hole in the middle, in the center of this door, and stuck his arm through the hole. And that's where the expression, chancing one's arm, came from. And uh, eventually the guy on the inside took his hand and shook it and then opened the door. The two men embraced and the feud was over. Um, it may be asked um, what the chief condition is for reconciliation to take place, and the answer is hostility. Two parties have to be hostile to one another 
in order for there to be reconciliation. And that's important to us in our study of Romans because Paul has been building a very strong case how we are hostile to God and consequently God is hostile to us. We are hostile to God because of sin. We don't want to have to answer to God. But God is actually hostile to sinful men. He is wrathful um, towards sin. We often hear about God's great love, his compassion, his forgiveness, and how he loves so much that he has to forgive. And we think that it's his nature to forgive. He's compelled to forgive. And so we are rather dismissive of our sins, thinking, well, whatever we did isn't so bad, and God has to forgive because that's what he does. But as we've been showing this situation that we have in the last five chapters of the book of Romans, we realize God is forgiving, but he's also just and holy, and it would be unjust and unholy of him to just simply overlook sins. He has to deal with sin in order for there to be justice. He has to judge sin, and he has to punish it. He just can't dismiss it because he's a nice guy. And so Paul has taken us to the courtroom where God sits on the bench, and we have discovered that all of us sit rightly condemned. We are guilty. And then he shows us the verdict of guilt, how it's been meted out, and how the punishment against our sin also has fallen on someone, another, a substitute. And that's what we talk about when we say a substitutionary atonement. Atonement means to be made at one with God, and it's a substitute who provides that for us. A substitute provides us atonement. And as a consequence of that, God is right to declare us justified. And the way I try to tell kids what justified means, it means just if I'd never sinned. That's a good way to remember it. So Paul now takes it up a notch. We are more than justified. Now in the text before us, he tells us we are also reconciled. Now reconciliation along with justification and redemption are important theological terms for us to to understand because they they expose to us the way of salvation. Now, we've talked about justification a lot. It's legal language. It's courtroom language. it, It conjures up images of the defendant standing before the judge. Reconciliation is not courtroom language. It's personal. It's more um, relational. It doesn't have to do with our being acquitted before a court. It has to do with two alienated persons, two alienated parties, two groups at war with one another who now come into harmony with one another. The hostility has been removed. And so the point of this entire paragraph that we're looking at today is just as justification has become ours through atonement, so also reconciliation results also from the sacrifice of Christ. It's interesting, too, on a kind of a side note here, that uh, reconciliation is a unique concept to Christianity. You don't find that in other, in, uh, in other uh, religions. It's a, you don't find any view of God as being someone that you can be friends with, someone that you are pal with, someone that has a close relationship with you. In fact, the Muslims consider it absolutely disrespectful of God to imagine that you could be his friend. So uh, they, it's, it's unique to the, the Christian faith that those who are once enemies of God, more than being friends, we actually become family. And that's what happens between God and us through Jesus. With that in mind, I invite you to take your Bible and turn with me where we left off two weeks ago 
in Romans chapter 5, beginning in verse 6. Again, Romans 3 through 5 have been dealing with the atoning work having to do with justification. Now in this paragraph, uh, 6 through 11, we're, we're, we're introduced into this concept of reconciliation with God, specifically that we were God's enemies, but through the atonement received by faith, we become fully reconciled to God. So our sin, our, our, our violence to God becomes the basis for his antagonism towards us. Uh, and that antagonism remains upon us. God's wrath against sin rests upon us. But two, also, God's offer of reconciliation is open to us right up until the day of judgment. His justice leads to wrath, but his love, his compassion leads to reconciliation. He wants to be friends with us. Now, the Lord's character leads us to his reconciliation. Now, we understand the concept of justice, but we have to understand it also in uh, contrast or pairing together with uh, his compassion. So we have an example of that in Exodus chapter 34, verse 6. The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin, yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. So just because God is just doesn't mean he's not also compassionate. And conversely, just because God is compassionate doesn't mean that he's not also just. So that's the mystery, the wonder, the awe of reconciliation that we're talking about today. Sin has created these obstacles. There's estrangement between us and God. God is estranged from us because of sin. It causes him grief. It causes him anger. There's also estrangement from us towards God. You know, we, we feel guilty for our sins. We, we resent God's authority. We don't want to have to answer to him. We, we, we try to suppress thoughts of God because we realize that we are sinners and we will have to stand in account to give to God. And so we say instead, well, I, I prefer a God who's more generous. I prefer a God who's less interested in justice and he's more interested about a relationship. I prefer a God that overlooks my flaws because they're not all that significant. You know, we, we want a God who hates dict dictators and drug lords, but uh, we, we also want the same God to overlook our mistakes because in comparison, they're really not so bad. It's, you know, how you're constantly driving five miles an hour over the speed limit because you realize that police have better things to do than to stop you if you're just marginally breaking the law. And that's how we think of ourselves, you know. There's other people who are driving recklessly. The police are going to stop them. They're going to overlook my indiscretion. That's how we view our relationship with God because we are not fully convinced that we ever really were that bad. We needed to be saved, but we really aren't that bad. And so we want God to just simply overlook our sins like a policeman does when we're just driving five, eight, 10, <laughs> 15. <laughs> no. <laughs> All right, so Paul's been explaining the benefits of justification. He's talked about that we have peace with God. We have uh, this ongoing standing with God of, of grace. We have a, a radiant hope. We have 
purpose and meaning when we face tribulations. There's this um, abundant infusion of love that's given to us by the Holy Spirit. But it's curious to me that when we come to this point here, Paul lingers for a while because he finds this completely astonishing. Paul is actually totally amazed at this point that he's about to make about the, the love of God. He finds it completely staggering. And so he tells us Christ died for us while we were still his enemies. And that's the thing that Paul is, is really wanting to drive home in the passage before us today. So he's not finished with this expedition. He's, he's given us an assurance of our salvation. He reminds us too, as we come to the end of this paragraph, he reminds us that that uh, the, the amazing thing is not only that God has provided us salvation, He has guaranteed it in the future, but right now He provides us this assurance that we have salvation. So He, he begins with Christ, He ends with Christ, He reminds us that we have assurance of salvation so that you don't have to continue to live as Christians riddled with guilt, facing this ongoing anxiety, this sleep robbing, inflaming guilt that, that tells you you're not worth being saved. You failed him. He might not keep you. And that's really an essential part of the text that we're going to open up today. So let's look at our text, Romans chapter 5, beginning in verse 6. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So we begin with the talk about the when of atonement. And there's two aspects of this. When did atonement take place? When in history does redemption apply to God's people? So he speaks of um, uh, this accomplishment two ways. And the first is in respect to us. And so we might ask, at what point in my personal history does Christ offer himself on the cross? You know, so uh, he's, he's saying, Paul tells us, first of all, that Christ offers himself. He dies on the cross. When we were still weak, verse 6, when we were still weak, weak, helpless, um, without strength, something that we can't do on our own. When we were in that position, Christ offers us salvation. So one of the cardinal doctrines of biblical Christianity has to do with the concept of original sin and uh, its impact on our spiritual strength. This is an, an argument, a concept which every generation of the church has had to do battle with. I, let me back that up a little bit. Every church, every Christian denomination holds to the concept of original sin. And when we talk about original sin, we're not talking, ooh, almost stepped off the dome. <laughs> it's that close. We're not talking about the first sin that Adam and Eve committed in the Garden of Eden. That's not what we mean when we mean the doctrine of original sin. We mean the consequences of that first sin. So in other words, the doctrine of original sin affirms that all of Adam and Eve's progeny, all of us been, who have been born from that race, are in, inheritors of this uh, corruptness. The consequences of Adam and Eve's sin is that all who have been born after them inherit this corruption, um, this 
moral decay. I'm dancing a little bit here, but I'm going to clarify it. This, uh, the debate comes in when we talk about original sin and t- is to what degree are we incapacitated? What degree have we inherited moral corruption? To what extent have we fallen from our state of original righteousness? So back in the fourth century, there was a very famous debate between Augustine and Pelagius. Pelagius affirmed that though there is original sin, there are no personal consequences to original sin. The, he, he denies the effects of sin, original sin altogether. And the cardinal point that Augustine was teaching was that the ravages of sin are so great, they, are, they penetrate so deeply into us that we are left in a state of spiritual death. And spiritual death means that though we are alive biologically, um, though we have all of our faculties remaining intact, unless, of course, you're a retired professor and now you don't have any faculties remaining. (laughs) Too soon. (laughs) All right. Though, Though we have all of our faculties and we have a mind we can think, we can reason, we, we, we have affections, and we have free will. Though we have all of these faculties, our humanity has been so damaged, so infused with the consequences of the fall, that by nature we are morally unable to respond to God. So there's a moral inability. So moral inability has to do with the fact that we are plunged so deeply into sin that our moral capacity to incline ourselves in any way to the things of God are completely not there. So so what I'm saying is if God in his grace and mercy was to offer salvation to anyone who wanted it, but he does nothing to change your heart, he does nothing to bring new life to you first, even though you have the capacity... The, the capacity to choose, you do not have the moral capacity to want to choose God. We simply don't have that moral capacity. So when we talk about free will, we have the volitional power to choose whatever we want. There's nothing that hinders our ability to choose one thing or the other. We may choose whatever we want, but in our fallen state, because we are morally incapacitated, we don't want God. We would never choose him. It's not that you don't have free will. It's that you're unable to choose God. The sin is so deep in you that you do not want God, you would not respond to the gospel. And you say, well, well, wait a minute. I remember the time that I chose to receive Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. Somebody offered it to me. Somebody gave me the way of salvation. And I chose to receive Jesus as my Lord and Savior. I agree, you made that decision. But my point is that unless God first worked the miracle of new life in your soul, you would not want him. You would not choose to receive him. You were able to and you want to only because first he was at work in your soul giving you life to respond. R.C. Sproul says, The overwhelming report in America today among professing evangelicals is that God offers the gospel to everybody and that those who exercise their will to receive Jesus, to make a decision for Christ, are the ones who are saved. So although God does 99% 
The 1% that decides our fate for eternity rests on our cooperating and choosing Jesus freely. The minute I'm persuaded of that will be the minute I climb down from my pulpit because I would have no hope whatsoever that the work of evangelism would be successful or that preaching would bring any fruit. I'd be like a preacher preaching the resurrection with great eloquence, power, rhetorical skills in the middle of a cemetery, calling the corpses to come to life. They're not going to come unless the Holy Spirit empowers the word of preaching and the outreach of evangelism. No one would come to Christ. We just sang a song, Jesus does it all. Jesus did it all, all to him I owe. Maybe we should change that. Jesus did a lot, much to him I owe, but ultimately I only have my good sense and congratulate myself that I chose him when other people didn't. This is the point that Jesus was making when he said in John 6, 44, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And this is what Paul has been teaching here, that, that Christ died for the ungodly while we were without strength, while we were morally incapacitated to respond, unable to act on, on the call. God doesn't wait for you to exercise your free will. He, he doesn't wait for you till you get to the point where you feel inclined towards him or repentant of your sins or get yourself in such a state that he finds you appropriate or attractive and then offers you the atonement. The point here is while we were in this state of moral incapacity, while we were dead in our trespasses and sin, Christ died. And that's the win in respect to our human condition. Which the second aspect of this is the what point in time, in time and space, does the atonement take place? That's what we celebrate every Christmas time. That in the pleroma to cranu, Galatians 4.4, in the fullness of time, God sent forth his son. There was a specific time in the history of the world when God sends Jesus into the world. And so you have the, the, all of the Old Testament, from the time of the calling of the patriarchs, the assembling of the nation, the giving of the laws, the picture of the, the temple, the, the cultivating of the, the nation, all of these things are, are breaking ground, are cultivating the future uh, for Israel. He's ripening history until the very moment that Christ would come into the world, we are told here, at the right time or in due time, or like Galatians 4.4, in the fullness of time. While men are utterly helpless to bring themselves to God, he sends his only begotten son to die, um, notwithstanding the fact that we are and were ungodly, completely unworthy of his love. We were powerless to escape the effects of sin. We were powerless to escape the consequences of, of death, uh, powerless to resist the, the forces of Satan, powerless to please him in any way, and yet it is that time that God sends his son to die for the ungodly. Verse 6 says this, in due time, at the right time, God sends his son. It might have seemed that it was quite late in time for some people and might 
seem quite early in time for others, but in the fullness of time, when the world was prepared spiritually, economically, linguistically, politically, philosophically, geographically, some other kind of leads, you know. The world is being prepared through all of this for the coming and the spread of the gospel, and it happens at just the perfect time, the time that God shows the right time. At the right time, God sends Jesus. And the right time for us, when we needed saving, when we needed a Savior, His timing was just right for us. It's, it's more than just to demonstrate His his justice and his, his love, it's also a, a declaration that uh, he saves every believer at the right time because you know what? Every one of us were also the ungodly that needed to be saved at the right time. Verse 7, for one would scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die, but God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Okay, so a righteous person is one who obeys the law. He does what is right. He, he, he follows the moral code. And so as the consequences of being righteous in the sense of doing what is right, there's a certain amount of respect that you have for a person who is righteous. And his point is, you can respect somebody and admire them for being right, but you're probably not going to lay down your life, sacrifice yourself just because that person is uh, morally right. And then he goes on to talk about a good person. A good person is somebody who's m more than just uh, righteous. In this case, it's, we, it's a person who we feel a certain amount of admiration for and probably feel a little love from. So because of this relationship, we might say, well, he's a good person, and we mean he's a, he's a, he's a kind person, he's a generous person, um, he's, a, he's a good fellow, he's the person that you might want to go the extra mile for. Uh, we want to reciprocate somehow the affection and the kindness that we feel from him. And so Paul's saying, rarely would someone sacrifice himself for a righteous person, though for a good person someone might... Um, risk their lives for. You know, there's no surprises there, right? Even pagans will sometimes do that. They'll sacrifice their life even for someone who's a complete stranger to them. Um, but the point that he's trying to make here is that's not what Jesus did. He didn't die for righteous people or good people. He died for dirt bags, and you are among them. He died for the unrighteous. He died for the ungodly. He died for sinners, and that's what we were. Of course, at the heart of every one of us really is this nagging little statement that says, um, yeah, I got saved, but really, in comparison anyway, I really wasn't so bad. And the point of the gospel is, yes, you were. You know, we're using all of our psychology, and it's at work in our hearts every minute, even as those who have been redeemed and partially sanctified, we have this desire to suppress the full admission of our guilt and our hopelessness. There's another interesting thing here is, you know, when we talk about human love, <coughs> human love is almost invariably attached to some object of that love that we feel 
uh, is attractive, something about that person that we are drawn to. Um, we feel inclined to love those who love us. And consequently, I think we are sometimes tempted to think that's how God loves too. He loves like we do. He loves, we love things that are attractive to us, things that benefit us, people who love us in return. Um, we think that somehow God is going to love us if we are more attractive, if we are more winsome, more obedient, uh, more righteous. Jesus says even the Pharisees, even the, the, the worst of the worst that, they, that he could think of at the time, uh, love people who love them. Charles Hodge, a theologian, said, if God loved us because we loved him, he would love us only so long as we love him and in that condition. And then our salvation would depend on the consistency of our treacherous hearts. But as God loved us as sinners, as Christ died for us as ungodly, our salvation depends, as the apostle argues, not on our loveliness, but on the consistency of the love of God. Isn't that a great comfort? How really frightening it would be to think that God loves me only as long as I do what is good and cooperate and love him in return. And the immense love of God demonstrated in the fact that Christ dies for the ungodly, for the unrighteous, for the undeserving, for the unlovable. I think about this, you know, just as a, hope I don't go too far astray on this. How many people can you think of that you would be willing to die for? And right off the top, you'd be willing to die for your mom and your dad, your husband or your wife, your kids, probably one or two friends, and that's probably it. I suppose you'd never really know until the, the moment struck you, you know, and then you'd hope you'd do better than that, right? You'd hope you'd be a better quality of personality than, than, than to just limit it there. And you hope that you're never put into that agonizing position, but, you know, what if you were? You, you often read stories of somebody heroically laying down their life uh, for a stranger, like, you know, when the Twin Towers went down. I read a story this week about these miners who were trapped in a collapsing mine these two guys were together. They both had uh, oxygen masks, but one of them was destroyed in the collapsing of the wall. And the one man says to the other, you take this mask. You have a wife and children. They need you. I, I'm alone. I can go. You, you must stay. So the one man voluntarily dies so that the other might live. And when we hear stories like that, we're, we're held in awe and, and wonder and respect, rightfully so, because here's, here's people who have sacrificed their lives for someone else. Or let's suppose an imaginary scenario about a, a Marine sergeant in Afghanistan. And there, he and his, he and his uh, platoon are, are well behind enemy lines and it's cold, it's late at night, they have a little teeny fire to try to keep warm, and the, and the sergeant is talking to his men, and suddenly a grenade flies out of the darkness right into their little huddle, and the sergeant instantly jumps on the grenade, and the grenade goes off, blowing him to pieces, but in his death he has saved his men, and you'd say 
he gave his life for his friends. But listen carefully to what Paul is saying here in verse 7. He's telling us that God is not like that. These are examples that show friends dying for friends or friends dying for loved ones, or loved ones dying for loved ones. But as great as that is, that's not the point that Paul is driving home about the kind of love that God has for us. God goes far beyond that, far that, further than, than we would. The wonder then is not simply that Christ should die for us, though that would be wonderful enough. The wonder is that Christ died for us while we were still sinners, ungodly, powerless, enemies of God. He didn't die for his friends. He dies for his enemies. He died for those who crucified him. He died for those who cheered the crucifiers on. He died for those that drove the nails in his hands. He died for the ones who, who disowned him. Now, let's go back to our illustration in Afghanistan, only this time the sergeant is captured by the Taliban and he's marched off for interrogation and torture. Because he's a sergeant, they beat him mercilessly. They break his teeth. They hang him upside down. They brand him. They shatter his legs. They, they crack his ribs. It breaks his cheekbone. His captors torment him day and night. At length, a rescue operation is mounted. The, the American forces move in. They surround the captors. Suddenly, out of nowhere, an American grenade flies into the little huddle. This time, the sergeant jumps on the grenade. It blows him to smithereens. And what has he accomplished? He's died for those who were torturing him. He's died for the enemy. And you say, that's stupid. Nobody would ever do that. But I know someone who did. He didn't die for good people. He died for bad people. He didn't die for saints. He died for sinners. He didn't die for his friends. He died for his enemies. He didn't die for people who loved him. He died for people who hated him. And so were you at one time. Verse 9. Since... Therefore, we have now been justified by his blood. How much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God? For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. If you like to draw on your Bible, circle, highlight, much more, much more. It indicates here that something to follow is even more amazing, overwhelming, significant than that which preceded it, as wonderful, as astounding as that was. Having been justified by his blood, we have been. That's in the past. We have been justified by his blood. Now Paul is saying, since we have been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath. So part of his atoning work is to save us from the wrath to come. He took the penalty on himself so that the wrath that we deserve falls on him. So here's the question. If God has the power and the will to redeem you at the cost of his son, spending his wrath against his son, how much more 
Will he save you, continue to save you, and keep you and make you redeemed by his life? If he was willing to save you at that great cost, how will he not be willing to keep you saved, to keep you apart from his wrath, now that you are no longer his enemies, more than friends, you are his children, his sons and his daughters? If he had the power to redeem you in the first place, much more does he have the power and the will to keep us redeemed and reconciled. Verse 10 says that while... uh, I lost my place. Well, I don't know. So verse 10 says that we were reconciled by his death. We shall surely be saved by his life. You know, I, I used to think that he's talking about his life on earth for those 33 years, 2,000 years ago. But that's not what Paul is saying here. He's talking about his present life, his present service, his present work, where he is now in heaven. So we were saved because of what he did when he was here physically 2,000 years ago. But he's saying something is different now that Jesus is in heaven alive for you today. What is he doing? What thing is Jesus doing that really has much bearing on us today? Hebrews 7.25, Therefore he is able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. Isn't that interesting that we have a man in heaven actively praying, interceding for us every single day? When we sin, Our man in heaven speaks up for us. He pleads his own blood on our behalf. He speaks to our defense. Have you asked yourself what Jesus is doing right now? Well, at least two things that I can think about. One of them is he's an advocate in your behalf. You know, sometimes Satan comes before God and says, I know what Jim has been up to. I heard him say it. I saw him sin. I saw him do it. He calls himself a Christian. He calls himself a pastor. He's just nothing but a hypocrite. You would do well to put him out of your misery. And Jesus stands up and says, Father, everything that he says about Jim is true, but Jim is one of your children. I shed my blood in his behalf. And I ask you to forgive Jim because of that, because of that blood. And you know what? The Father forgives him every single time. Well, the second thing that Jesus is doing back to the Hebrews 7.25 is that he's he's interceding for you. He's, He's able to save completely. That means he's praying for you. He's He's praying that you'll remain strong in temptation. He's he's asking that you will grow in grace, that you'll follow the will of God, that you'll resist the temptations of the enemy and of the earth. Andrew Murray said, Oh, how bold I would be if I could only hear Christ in the next room praying for me. But distance makes no difference. He's praying for me in heaven. Is it important to you that you are saved by his life? I mean, we understand that we are saved by his death. Is it important to you that you are also saved by his life? And maybe you've heard 
Billy Graham say, you know, I don't preach a dying Jesus, I preach a living Christ. And that's true, because as long as Jesus is alive, I am bound to him. As long as he lives in heaven, so will I. As long as Jesus is interceding for me, I am forgiven for my sins. As long as he lives, I will live. Isn't that an amazing thought? Jesus is alive forever. We shall be saved forever. One last thought. Am I running long yet? I feel like I am. Verse 11, I'll wrap this up. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have received reconciliation. Here's this final unbreakable link in this chain of, of, of redemption, and that is that we as Christians experience joy. There is a rejoicing that takes place in God. Now, I admit this might not be the most important. It's certainly not the most profound evidence of our security in Christ, but it is perhaps the most beautiful one because it's, although it's completely subjective, it is no less real. We rejoice, we are told, in God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And why is that? We rejoice because we have received reconciliation. He gave this great gift to us. And so abundant joy ought to be ours, ought to be experienced uh, through Jesus Christ our Lord. There ought to be this sense of, of gratefulness for what God has provided for us. One commentator said, the one clear mark of a true Christian is that he always rejoices. And I have problems about with that because while it's true, it's not my experience. You know, I don't feel like I rejoice all that much. I, I know I have abundant reason to rejoice, you know, but I don't experience that overabundant, overflowing heart of joy. Well, why is that? Why don't we rejoice if we know it's ours to have, we want it, and we should? And I think honesty, honesty compels me to say that I don't have the joy, the rejoicing in God that I should. And Martin Lloyd-Jones gives us a number of reasons for that, which I list for the sake of self-examination. He says, first of all, it's a failure to grasp the truth of justification by faith alone. Secondly, it's a failure to meditate as we ought. In other words, we don't think about what we already know. And third, he says, it's a failure to draw the necessary conclusions from Scripture. For while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son. Much more, since we are reconciled, shall we be saved by His life. We were His enemies, we were hostile, we were aliens to Him, and it has been replaced by not just forgiveness, not just that we are His friends. On John 15, something, no longer do I call you disciples, now you are my friends. Here he says that we are his, his children. We are reconciled to God. And that's an amazing thing, because although we offended God, although we violated him, although we hurt him, 
He's the one who offers us reconciliation. He's the one who's been estranged, and amazingly, though we've offended him, he's the one who offers the end of the grounds of hostility. He offers to transform our relationship, changing it from enmity to friendship to, to being his sons and his daughters. We are saved from this outpouring of God's wrath on the day of judgment. And if God has done the greater thing, will he not also do the lesser thing? If he had saved us while we were enemies through the death of his son, will he not keep us saved through his son's life? Well, let's go back to that illustration at the beginning about the door of reconciliation. Here's two hostile parties, two groups at war. Only this time, we're not talking about two Irish clans. We're talking about you and God. There's hostility. There's war. Someone, the offended party, comes to offer forgiveness and reconciliation. Someone, the dominant party, offers to have cease of hostilities, friendship instead of enmity. You, in the meantime, are huddled inside, barricaded from this hostile force, this overwhelming force, because you have no hope of success. And this hostile, overwhelming force breaks through rather violently into the barrier separating you from him. And into this hole, he extends his hand of reconciliation. Will you accept it? Let's pray. It's an amazing thing that you've given us salvation. It's more amazing that you call us friends, and even more amazing that you call us your sons and your daughters. And not only do we have an end of hostility, we have reconciliation. We thank you for that, God. And once again, God, I pray that we have this growing concept of such a great God, such a big God, and that our understanding of salvation turns its focus away from all the things that we have done to earn salvation, and we reflect back, you, Jesus, have done it all. All to you we owe. Father, help us to understand that, that we might love you more, that we might be a more vital testimony of your love to each other. We might extend the arm of reconciliation to one another. I pray that you would do this for the sake of Christ and his church. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen.